Welcome to episode 96 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Eric Dresselhaus, CEO of ESS, Energy Storage Systems, the leading provider in long-duration energy storage, a key technology to enable the decarbonization of the energy system and a catalyst for a sustainable planet. Prior to joining ESS, Eric was the co-founder and EVP of global development at Silver Spring Networks, a leading provider and innovator in the internet of important things, smart grids and smart cities. He's a visionary leader with over 25 years of experience developing and evangelizing new and disruptive technologies to further sustainability within the energy and utilities space. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Eric Dresselhaus, CEO of ESS. Eric, welcome to the Climate Champions. Lee, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. When it comes to climate change, what was your motivating moment where you decided that you wanted to do something about it? Lee, I'm probably a little bit of an odd duck this way, but I actually grew up in a clean tech household. My dad was in the water purification and filtration business. And so from the day I was born, I lived in a clean tech household. My dad was very involved in things like the passage of the Clean Water Act back in the 70s. And so in our house, you were thinking about climate change. You were, maybe it wasn't thought of as climate change, but you were thinking about the environment and environmental impacts from day one. As soon as you heard words, those were the words you heard. So for my whole life, I've been on some part of this journey. That's awesome. Given that it's been so long, what drives you now? It feels to me that we're finally making progress. And I say that knowing that there have been spurts and jumps forward at various times. Certainly the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act back in the 70s were a huge improvement from what had come before that. But it certainly feels to me that throughout really the last 25 years that I've been doing this professionally as my full-time both avocation and vocation at the same time, that we're making meaningful progress. And I think that's really important because as human beings, it's tough to tilt at the windmill if you don't see any progress. And so these days, what motivates me is the progress that I see happening. When you meet people that don't believe the science or don't understand the science, how do you convince them of the importance of climate change mitigation? (laughs) Well, thankfully, There's fewer of those conversations seemingly these days than there were in the past, but it still comes up. The way I think about it and the way I explain it to people is that it's a little bit like if you were in a toxic work environment or had a toxic home life, that it's something that's not just an event or a thing that's happening. It's something that permeates the very existence of the thing. And to me, climate And the impact of climate change is, you know, people will say, well, geez, it used to be global warming. And then when it got cold, people said, well, well, I guess it's not global warming, is it? And so we had to call it climate change. And I said, you know, you got to think about it a little more broadly than that. This is a change to the environment that we live in. 
And when that change happens, it has these knock-on effects to everything that happens around it. And you don't know what the second and third tier implications of those changes are going to be. So think about it as if you're in a workplace where you've got a bad boss, what does that do? Is it not just the direct interactions you have with the bad boss? It's all of the other things that happen around you in terms of the workplace, collaboration, productivity, and everything else. Can you talk about what ESS does and what you do? Sure. So ESS, Energy Storage Systems Incorporated, is working on a really old problem, which is creating a time machine. And you might kind of laugh and think, what do you mean a time machine? But what we do is long duration energy storage. And that really, in effect, is a time machine. Everybody that's worked in the energy transition is certainly aware of wind and solar and the benefits from a decarbonization standpoint. But most people recognize that there's a fundamental problem with intermittency and stability, predictability of those resources. We have not figured out how to get Mother Nature to coordinate with us on a basis that is equal to when we want to use the energy. So what long duration storage does is it really helps solve that problem. It creates both time-shifting opportunities and really gives us the clearest pathway to a 24-7 renewable decarbonized energy system. Yeah, from my perspective, ESS is bringing medium long-term storage is how I'll say, because I still think we need long-term from the difference between how much solar we get in the summer versus winter and a way to really make it super long. But I think we critically need what you're producing. I agree, Lee. And I would also say we need short-term storage as well. If you look at the problem we're trying to solve, this is an all-of-the-above answer, not an A versus B. So to me, when people say, hey, don't you just hate those lithium guys who are doing short-duration stuff? I don't hate the lithium guys. I think we need short-duration storage. It has a place. Long-duration storage, which we look at as kind of that 4 to 24 hours of storage, is really the workhorse of the system. If you imagine where we're going in decarbonization, that's the thing you're going to use every day. And then you have ultra long duration storage and a lot of people working on very interesting technologies in that space. And that, as you say, is going to be kind of seasonal level shifts. And I think we need them all. Has the pandemic affected the business at all? It has affected the business. It's affected the business in terms of how we kind of get up and go to work every day. ESS builds a thing. Right? We build these very large, long-duration batteries, and that's a little hard to do over Zoom. We have a factory here in Wilsonville, Oregon, just south of Portland. As the pandemic hit and lockdown started to come, we're in the midst of ramping up the production of our products, and our people had to be here to make the products. So that's a real challenge. And we had to do things that a lot of companies had to do in terms of splitting shifts and having people come in so that we could keep social distancing when things did start to open up. But then the second layer effects, of course, are supply chain. We're buying products from a variety of component vendors, some in the States, some overseas. Supply chains were disrupted. We're not the only company that had to battle that. And another way that it affects you is that for all of our people, the people that make ESS happen, their personal lives are being disrupted. People who used to come to work after the kids went to school all of a sudden had a new challenge, which is the kids are going to be at home. So how's that going to work, right? And then the last place that it really affected us 
But interestingly, it didn't affect this as negatively as you might have guessed is as a relatively newer company, we're not Siemens, we're not GE, we're not well-known with 100-year relationships with all of our customers. Our challenge, a lot of our activity goes into meeting new customers and explaining the value of long-duration storage and how it fits in. And you generally would do that by going to conferences, attending seminars, visits to the customer sites, those kinds of things. And you couldn't do any of those things. But amazingly, throughout all of that, because of the broader kind of mega trend of energy transition, our amount of business development and new customer activities actually grown dramatically in the last year, despite the pandemic. And of course, like a lot of companies, we also have been able to be really efficient in how we do that because we could be having a conversation with someone in Europe in the morning and the West Coast of the US in the afternoon. And you couldn't have physically been in both of those places in the same day. It's interesting that you talked about the fact that people are starting to appreciate your product and what it does and long-term storage, especially with the price of solar and wind continuing to decline. That just makes the need, the requirement to be able to store it and to store a lot of it at a low cost that much more important. Absolutely. I remember back Lee, in the early 2000s when the ramp up of renewables was just starting. It was 2, 3, 4% of the total energy production. And when renewable resources were in those kind of low single digits, storage didn't matter that much, right? It just kind of tucked into the system and people said, just send me more build more wind, build more solar, we'll just take it and the system will just absorb it. But because of that pricing dynamic you've talked about, combined with some of the environmental goal setting that's been done at state levels and at national levels in some cases, now we've got lots of places that have crossed 20%, 25% in California, I think now past 30%. And what we've seen from a storage perspective is once you get to 20 to 25%, then the need for storage goes through the roof, right? Because the stability and the ability to absorb all of those resources without storage becomes really, really hard to do. And then economically, you're right, we can build solar, we can build wind much less expensively than we used to. But the result of that, and this has been written about quite broadly, is we have times in the middle of the country, in the middle of a weekday, where there's so much renewable that we actually have negative grid pricing. We're just grounding the power. We see this in California happening at times now on a really sunny day. There's too much solar, we can't absorb it, and we just throw it away. And of course, that's a little bit of a tragedy from an environmental perspective, particularly if we throw that clean, kind of already paid for, if you will, power away, and then we fire up a gas-fired peaker plant at six o'clock at night, to allow people to cook their dinner and watch the ball game and maybe even charge their electric car. And that just is wrong. So we got to fix that problem. Yeah. As you said before, you're not against the lithium people because we need all arrows in the quiver. They're doing their job. You're doing your job and everybody has a part to play. I talk about it in waves. Wave one, like you said, solar and wind when it was a small amount, you just put it on the grid. That's not very complicated. You just have to build the project, you're good to go. Wave two, you needed a way to deal with maybe some of the power quality issues. So you needed short-term storage just to deal with that and to do quick little shifts of peak. Wave three, 
to me is software and microgrid controllers and the ability to give power quality when you have a larger amount of renewables on the system, like you were talking about, to me, you're squarely in wave four. And I think it's a huge, hugely important wave in order to really get to 90% renewable or greater. And that is the ability to build more solar and wind, even when you already have enough so that you can make it through the night. Absolutely. I read a lot of things, people talking about overbuild, do overbuilds of solar and wind in combination, and that's okay. We should do some of that. But cost-effective, non-toxic, long-duration storage takes the guesswork out of that mix. And I think that's really important because we can't forget that at the end of all of these discussions, when people come home, they flip the switch and they want the lights to come on. That has to happen. And if we're all about electrifying everything, because we can do that in a low or no carbon way, then we're going to have to make sure that resiliency, reliability are kind of core tenants of how we make that happen. We need storage so it can all be renewable. And you look at the electrification of transportation, look at green hydrogen and some of the other kind of other conversations, I'll call it, that are happening in parallel. All of those actually just expand the challenge. But it's a totally solvable challenge if you have long-duration storage. Absolutely. Can you talk about your background before ESS? So the first thing I've got to say is that I was born and raised in Wisconsin. So that's a very important part of who I am. Packer fan. Packer fan. Went to the University of Wisconsin. So I'm a Packer Badger, even though I've lived a lot of places in the time since I've left. Inherently, always a Wisconsin guy, deep at heart. But as I graduated university, I got a job with Procter & Gamble. It was kind of a funny place for me to go because I wasn't a business major. I wasn't a marketing person. So that wasn't something that I had even really thought about. I had a friend who had graduated the year before, and she was back on campus recruiting and, and reached out and said, hey, you should come interview here. It's a pretty great place to work, and I really like it. And I had no idea what I was going to do after I graduated. And so I thought, well, I suppose I should probably interview for some jobs. And amazingly, through all of that, I was offered a job. So I moved to Ohio. And I thought, well, this is something I might do for a couple of years. But I stayed for almost 10. It was just a really interesting place to work. You worked with great people. You got to work on interesting kind of big things. And the kind of the training and the development for a young person out of school was just second to none. It was really valuable. So in 1996, as that time was coming up, I thought, boy, if I stay past 10 years, then I'm never going to leave. And I never thought I'd be here this long. Everybody at the time seemed to be quitting their good paying jobs to go to work for a dot-com. The dot-com era was cranking up. And I had been a technology user and very interested in technology. So I thought that might be what I would do next. But a funny kind of important life moment happened for me, which was I had learned about some people working on what was trying to be kind of a next generation AMR system, automatic meter reading system. And had done a project when I was at Proctor that today you would call a big data analytics problem, but barcode scanning had become ubiquitous. And so now there was this challenge of, you know, we've got so much more data. How do we use the data? How do we make that data actionable? And so through this project that I won't bore you with all the details of, I got to talk to the people that had been involved in some of the earliest deployments of barcode scanning in retail. And the funny, important part of the story that's carried with me for the last 25 years is when you talk to them, there was no business case to be built for barcode scanning. 
the problem that barcode scanning was going to solve was that people at the checkout counter were kind of slow and inefficient and probably made a lot of mistakes. So you could solve that problem. And it turns out that the checkout clerks at a grocery store were lightning fast and dead nuts accurate. And barcode scanning equipment was expensive and was complicated to administer these programs. And everybody said, oh, you just can't build a business case. Now, fast forward through what we all know, the value of barcode scanning has very little to do with checkout accuracy. It's everything to do with loyalty programs, supply chain efficiencies, consumer insights and understandings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You couldn't imagine not having barcode scanning today. So when I was talking to these guys trying to do a meter reading system and the challenges that they were having, the light bulb moment was you're solving the wrong problem. You're trying to solve the checkout clerk problem, which was can I build a business case that can be built on taking meter readers off the street? And that wasn't going to be the problem that had to get solved. And so we took that and expanded it. And there was some work being done in places like Berkeley. And EPRI had done a little bit of work at the time. You were certainly involved and some of your colleagues at Semper at the time thinking through this crazy idea that was going to be called a smart grid. And AMI systems combined with smart grid were going to be different than AMR systems, which were just about how do I get a meter read and how do you transform that whole thing into a real-time connected system that would give you data analytics control across the meter, the distribution networks, and everything in between, et cetera, et cetera. And so that led to the founding of Silver Spring Networks. And Silver Spring Networks was I like to tell people an IoT company before anybody knew IoT and a big data company before there was big data. Ultimately, we feel like everybody caught up. You were the first smart meter or advanced meter company that really existed, that really focused on it, that was trying to build a product that would leverage communications across the grid for other uses. And right now, that's what everybody thinks of as normal work to manage the grid in a more efficient way, but you were really there at the very beginning. Well, I think we were. And I would tell you for anybody listening to the podcast that's thinking about a new, creative, innovative idea in energy, you might see that as inspirational. It's also a cautionary tale. We were talking to people at the time about this idea of a common networking infrastructure. You could do metering and DA. And by the way, renewables were coming. I will show you the original picture from the founding days of Silver Spring, where we had an electric car plugged into a charger and told people they would have to manage that. Of course, it was an EV1 because that's the only car anybody knew. And people looked at us and said, you know, smart people, people who were in senior positions at big utilities and said, that's wrong. I would never want to do that. That's just flat out wrong. And we'd say, why is it wrong? And they would say, because metering is run by customer service and distribution is run by grid ops. And those people don't like each other and they'd never talk. So we were coming at it at a time where it wasn't just that it was a technology transformation. It was a technology transformation that was going to really require business process rethinking and reengineering. And people were not comfortable with that. It even goes beyond that. Because you were a small startup company, the bigger metering companies, they might have come in after you, 
but they were able to outmarket you in some ways, certainly early on, even though you were the ones that blazed the trail. And I think that's another cautionary tale. Well, that's for sure. In fact, one unnamed company at the time when we were starting went through over the course of a, call it a five or six year period, calling out that they thought what we were doing was dangerous and wrong. And then they introduced their copycat product. And then later on in life, they bought us. So there you go. That's the evolution of how these things happen over time. And I know secret details of that story. I was pretty involved. (laughs) That leads us to my next question. What setbacks have you had along the way? Oh, boy. Too many to mention. I don't know. How long is this a three-hour podcast, Lee? We'll try to cover them all. I look at it in a couple of different domains. The first, as a young company relying on venture-backed funding, I can tell you that in the late 90s, literally nobody wanted to talk about this. In fact, I had a potential funder who talked to me and we explained what we were trying to do around Smart Grid. And he asked me flat out, he said, can we call it that.com? And I said, but we're not really a .com. And he says, yeah, nobody will know. (laughs) But if you could call yourself a .com, then I can get you funded, right? And then the dot-com bust happens and people say, well, now nothing can get funded because the dot-com bubble burst, no venture backed, anything is going to happen. And then it gets a nudge better for the moment. And then 9-11 happens. And then Cleantech 1.0 gets a little bit of momentum in the mid 2000s. And of course, there's a few kind of negative stories that come out of that. And so Cleantech, which we don't generally call it anymore, I like energy transition better it's gone through these ebbs and flows. And so from that domain, it takes a lot of perseverance. And I have an immense amount of respect for a huge number of companies that have had the wherewithal, the tenacity, the sheer grit to survive the waves. Now, we happen to be in a moment right now where things are pretty good. There's a lot of people taking interest and a lot of capital flowing towards these solutions. And that's awesome. I hope it lasts forever, but it probably won't if history repeats. And so we have to be careful. But then the second thing I'd say, Lee, is that the other thing that people that work in this space learn is that these are hard products. I love the, I don't know who coined hard tech as a category, but a lot of the products that are being built really are challenging. And when we're dealing with not just utilities, but utilities and other operators of big infrastructure, the expectations for what minimal viable product is are really high, right? In fact, I would argue there's no such thing as MVP in the energy space because MVP looks like bulletproof 20-year operation with no maintenance cost. And that's a pretty high bar. You learn your way through that as you're building products up. This isn't a consumer app that you can put out and iterate on over time. If it gets a little bit of traction, we'll do an upgrade later. The bar for what good enough looks like here is really high. Can you talk about the successes that you're most proud of? Sure. Well, you hit the biggest one, which was Silver Spring Networks was a successful company financially for the investors, for the employees as a business. But I'm more proud of the fact that we were at that early stage and predicted and helped really create what became Smart Grid as the operating model for the modern utility. And we have a lot of pride, not just myself, but the founding team and people who were at it for a long time. We have an immense amount of pride in that. Related to that, the people who were a part of the company 
and the team that we were able to build was pretty phenomenal. And they've gone on to do some pretty great things. I have 10 people that worked for me at my time at Silver Spring who are currently CEOs or COOs of big tech companies in the energy space. Wow. So we don't really have people in Silicon Valley talk about the PayPal mafia, but there are not exclusive to Silver Spring, but stories of great companies that have had a real impact in the industry. They helped recruit, develop, and incubate other folks who went on to build great companies too. We need more of that in our space because the problem we're trying to solve is big enough that we need a lot of people working on a ton of different things to be able to get there. When you look out 10, 20, 30 years, what do you think is going to happen to the climate? How is the earth going to do? I think it's going to be a struggle just because the mountain's so high. And I wouldn't want to say anything too optimistic, even though people who know me know I'm a relentlessly optimistic person. I wish I could just say, hey, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. We're going to get there. I feel better about it today than I have in a while. I know that it's out there, but I can't see it from here. To me, the big shift that we could do as a society is getting past the point of thinking about these things as extras or burdens, that environmental, sustainability, clean, are these negative adder things that you have to do that make something harder or more expensive or anything else. I want us to get to the point where we build climate consciousness as a core tenant of how we think about how things are built. And if we can do that, I think that can really accelerate, help things go mainstream. I am quite encouraged by one thing, which is as I talk to people in their 20s, I guess I'm old enough now, Lee, I can say when I talk to the kids, right? If I talk to people in their 20s and early 30s, they get this on a level that is so much deeper than when I talk to 40s and 50s and 60-year-olds. This is how they think about the world. They think about sustainability. They think about minimizing their footprint in a way that I think is much deeper. And so that's pretty encouraging to me. We just need more of them to grow up faster and be in charge. Has the pandemic impacted your vision of the future at all? It changed everything for everybody. And I think that's good. I think shaking up status quos is a good thing for society and for people individually, because as we talk about some of the changes we'd like to make, you might have said, geez, I don't know that that can happen because we've always done it this other way. And if the pandemic taught us nothing, it's that on very short notice, we can make very dramatic changes to how we do things. It is possible for large groups of people to shift if we all have a compelling enough reason to do it. So clearly the pandemic was a compelling event, as they say, right? It was a burning bridge. It made you go act. I hope that as a society on a global basis, we can take climate in that same vein and say this is urgent enough, it's compelling enough that we can make these shifts fast enough to get there. Can you talk about one piece of advice that you would recommend to people if they want to help mitigate climate change? What I would say, Lee, is Jimmy Carter had it wrong. So I'm old enough, perhaps you're old enough, perhaps other listeners are old enough to remember during the oil crisis in the 70s, there was this famous TV broadcast of Jimmy Carter with a big woolly sweater on sitting by a fire telling everybody to put on a sweater and turn down the heat 
because we had to save oil. And that created, I think, a mindset that being climate conscious or addressing environmental concerns was all about doing without. How can I just use less and lower my impact, which I get, and we should do some of those things. But I don't think telling people that the answer to the agricultural crisis is to be hungry is the right answer. It just doesn't resonate with people. So I don't think that it sells. What we collectively as a society, and I'll speak for people like myself who have worked on the vendor side, building products and solutions, trying to bring those to market. What we have to be focused on is building those products or solutions in a way that are both better for the environment and better for the end user. It isn't an either or, it's gotta be an and statement that we have to build products that are actually more appealing to our customers, our markets, and happen to be better for the environment. This is not a new thought. Tesla is a really cool car. It's just a flat out cool car as judged by cars. It also happens to be a more environmentally friendly car, but mostly it's a really cool car. And if you think about some of the new cars coming out, I just saw a video of a Lucid driving around. That's a really cool car, right? And if you're a pickup guy, maybe you like the Rivian, maybe you're looking at that new Ford F-150 Lightning and you're going, ooh, but you want it, hopefully you want it because people are building actually really cool products that happen to be more environmentally friendly. I use the analogy, I'm a big cook. My wife and I love to cook together. We're fortunate that we live in California, so we are living in this prosperity of fruits and vegetables and the nation's breadbasket. But I look at locally grown organic food, and I know it's better. I know it's better for the environment. I know that regenerative agriculture is better for the planet. But I got to tell you, the carrots just taste better. It's just better. It's a better carrot as a carrot, whether you knew anything about how it was built. If you just tasted it as a carrot, it's a better carrot. And so I think that's the mentality that I try to bring to the work that I've done and the people I interact with, which is let's just build a better product and then we'll secretly sneak the vitamins in through the back door. So I guess the piece of advice you would give to people is to be open to new, better products that happen to be good for the environment. Yeah. And just don't take it as a choice. Part of the advice is also is don't cop out. Do the work to build that cooler product that's better, better for the environment, better for the user. Don't just throw in the towel and say, well, that was too hard. Do you have any questions for me? I do. My question for you, Lee, because you've been around and working across a really wide range of things. What's the coolest thing you've seen along the way that didn't make it or maybe hasn't made it yet? Really quick, just because you asked, one is a new solar material made by Pi Energy. They're working really hard. They're on their fourth prototype. And I really hope they get there. I'm on their board now. World-changing stuff. Makes solar so much less expensive, so much easier to use for everyone. And then the second, I met a company called SignWatch. They have charging infrastructure within the car that can save literally, I'm going to say trillions of dollars in charging infrastructure if we had to put it all out there the current way we're doing it. It's super exciting what they are capable of, but they're not there yet. I do have great hope that they're going to get there. That's awesome. Maybe I'm a little Pollyanna on these things, but in my experience, if we can get everybody to agree on the problem we're trying to solve, we will find the solution. And just getting people to agree has been the harder part. But once we get everybody rowing in the same direction, technology, 
innovation, human tenacity, pretty amazing things to help solve problems. And on that very upbeat note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. Eric, your family was in water filtration and the clean tech love stuck. You are a self-described environmental odd duck. You know the climate is a total mess. You're going to fix it because you're motivated by progress. We're in a bad situation. We can't give in. This is the one and only environment that we have to live in. ESS, it's going to help us get more green. You think of it as an energy storage time machine. We need all our arrows in the quiver to help us change course with ESS playing the part of a storage workhorse. When you look back in the past, it's where your story did begin. That's why you like the Packers and the badges, because it began in Wisconsin. If we want energy to be renewable all day, there's 24 hours to be filled. We need ESS to economically overbuild data and a smarter grid. They were your thing. Thank you for co-founding Silver Spring to transform utility industry. Your perseverance had to be strong. Distribution folks don't talk to customer folks. They told you you were crazy wrong. You were a founder of the smart grid. You helped to blaze the trail, but you want people to know it is a cautionary tale. You avoid calling yourself.com and making the bubble blunder. You passed on the bucks and said no to a venture capital funder. You didn't like calling it the clean tech mission. You much prefer the energy transition. You have to have passion and stick out your neck. It takes a lot of drive to get involved in hard tech. You are a great leader. You fight against status quos. Your leadership developed 10 energy CEOs. You love the younger generation. They just get it more. They have climate consciousness, urgency at their core. When it comes to climate change, the problem is so large. We need the kids to grow up faster so they can be in charge. A climate change lesson the pandemic was telling we can take action fast enough if it's urgent and compelling. You spoke very boldly. You weren't quiet as a mouse. Thank you very much, Eric Dresselhouse. You killed it. You killed it. Unreal. Unbelievable. A big thank you to Eric not only for taking on the CEO reins of ESS, a linchpin for clean energy and clean technology, but for co-founding SilverSpring, which arguably launched the smart grid era for utilities, enabling the modernization of the electric grid. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe. Rated five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Eric spent countless hours with San Diego Gas and Electric, and in particular, I'd like to give a call out to Ed Fong. Together, and of course with others, they brainstormed what the future could be and faced tremendous political and cultural challenges. Eventually, both Eric and Ed did not end up leading the Smart Grid project at San Diego. There were timing, political, and business issues. But both, through their dedication and sacrifice, played a huge part in helping to change an industry, a critical step to help mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.